Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 19. Jesus gives us, at the beginning of the chapter, a number of foundations, foundations of Christian marriage. Really, it's a little broader than just marriage. It also speaks of singleness, divorce, remarriage. And we are so blessed to study together today and join our effort, join in our efforts to truly picture Christ and salvation, Christ and His bride. At the beginning of this study, I thought that I would be able to move through each one of these five sort of structural points that Jesus makes in one week. As I studied that first week, I realized, well, it may be a couple of weeks, and here I am only doing one point per week. And today is no different. I thought, well, maybe I can just hit these last two points, one after the other. And as I studied it, I realized, no, I'm only going to be getting to the fourth point. So today we're looking at that fourth foundation. If you've not been with us, I'd encourage you to go back to our website or perhaps our YouTube channel and watch or listen to the first three foundations of Christian marriage as these are the basis of what Jesus is saying in our passage today. Let me read to you the entire passage. It's verse 1 down to verse 12 of Matthew 19. Follow along as I read aloud. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. There are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. This is the word of God. Through the centuries, Christians have believed various beliefs regarding divorce and remarriage in the earlier years of Christianity. Uh, Augustine actually voiced probably what was the majority opinion from the beginning up until that point. He lived in the 300s, and he just took the face value of our passage here that divorce is, in fact, forbidden except for the case of adultery. As time went on, as the Roman Catholic Church began to develop their wide-scale dogma, which is frankly apart from Scripture, Christians moved further and further away from that simple idea. In the 1100s, the Roman Catholic Church officially recognized the seven sacraments as the means by which the church gives the grace upon people, bestows God's grace upon people for salvation. 
Those sacraments are baptism, Eucharist, which is Mass, confirmation, confession and penance, ordination, of course, that's for monks and priests, what's called extreme unction, which has to do with the healing of the sick and is also connected to what we would know as last rites, what happens at the end of life. And the seventh one is what? Marriage. That's right. In the 1100s, Peter Lombard, in an official statement for the church called Sentences, he identified these seven sacraments, and marriage is one of the ways in which the church saves the people who submit to their marriages. They tied marriage to salvation, and it's a salvation, of course, that the church only is able to dispense that grace for salvation. And so it followed, as time went on, that the Catholic Church absolutely forbade divorce for any reason whatsoever. In the Council of Trent, for instance, the church said, if you divorce, even for the reason of heresy or for the reason of abuse, and I think that would include adultery or desertion, you are to be damned. They said, you are anathema, the church declared. Well, in the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers took a different view. They went back to some of the, what the early church believed. Luther said that marriage is not intended to be a sacrament of salvation. It's not a sacrament of the church. You would not lose your salvation or go to hell if you had been divorced. He acknowledged that divorce is not a good thing. It's not the way God intended it. However, he allowed for divorce if there was evidence for adultery or abandonment. Other reformers took very similar views. They would include abuse. All of these things would fall under that basic idea. Divorce is the result of sin and brokenness in our world. It's not a good thing. People should do everything they can to avoid it. But in the end, it's because of this sinful world. Sadly, in a marriage, we might see one or more of these, what sometimes people call the three A's, adultery, abandonment, or abuse. And generally speaking, the Protestant church has taken that view since the Reformation. Now, I hasten to add, in recent years, there have been some very respected, very good theologians, some of our our brothers and sisters who have taken what's called the permanency view. It's not like the Roman Catholic view that ties it to salvation and damnation. But they do believe that there should never be entered any divorce whatsoever. There are no exceptions, and that, therefore, remarriage should never be permitted, even with the evidence of the three A's. Many go so far as saying that even if your spouse leaves you and marries another... You are not free to marry, and you would be committing adultery if you did marry. Well, I believe their intent, these theologians, I believe their intent uh, of this permanency view is good. They're trying to hold up the value of marriage. They're trying to uh, inject our, our culture with the value of marriage, which is certainly absent of good biblical marriages. They're trying to hold up uh, the ideas of uh, the unity and the union that it's preserved in the gospel and pictured in, in a marriage. And they also have not just good motives, but they have some scholarship behind. They say if you look at Jesus' exception for divorce, uh, this phrase, this word for the phrase sexual immorality could be used to talk about a very specific case when people are betrothed or engaged and one of them is unfaithful. Well, where these folks say that when Jesus talks of remarriage, he says, any divorcee, they would say, commits adultery no matter what the case is. So they conclude that he prohibits all marriage, all remarriage, except when your spouse dies. Now, there's some problems with this position. I think 
beginning with the idea that the exception only refers to the very specific case of betrothal or engagement. It sort of begs the question, why doesn't Jesus just spell that out to us, that this is talking about engagement? And that position, I think, also does not consider what's called the passive voice in the Greek for that phrase, commits adultery, which would be better translated, he is stigmatized as committing adultery. He is seen as by others, he's considered by others as committing adultery. In other words, he's talking not about God's law, but he's talking about how others view him. All right, that's sort of academic. I just wanted to mention that because I know some of you in studying these things will come across this permanency view. I do not take the permanency view. I take the traditional view that most Christians really since the beginning have taken, going all the way back, and then the Reformers sort of reinstated. We take the traditional view. I think most of our pastors, if not all of us, didn't, I didn't query all of them, but I think all of us take the same view of divorce and remarriage. Well, this is where we are in the study of the words of Jesus to the people there asking about divorce, remarriage, and these other things. Where have we been so far? Let me just review where we've been because this leads into what Jesus is going to say about divorce. What have we learned so far? Number one, we've learned that marriage is a treasure treasure that's woven into creation. In God's beautiful creation, He created male and female. We heard it read moments ago. In that creation, He didn't just create mammals with this male and female, but even His image bearers, the ones who would have a spirit, the ones who could have a spiritual relationship with God and with one another. They would have the capability of, of logic and spiritual connection. That's verses 4 and 5. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the creation there on the sixth day, we studied this. It's a very special way that God created man, and God declared this very good. And you can... Sure, you can find a a physical protecting unity among animals, but the unity that man and women can have is so much superior. It's a wonderful blessing, marriage, one man, one woman, unified together. This is a part of God's creation. The two shall become one, verse 6. They are no longer two but one. Now, we can understand this is not talking about the physical sense, though it definitely was about Adam and Eve, but for us, there's a spiritual unity that's happening, a sweet communion that's greater than any one of the animals. Sweet unity that's so strong, so real, that it can be said that we are one. Marriage ceremony is to be a picture of this. Well, as God revealed His truth throughout the ages, put that truth in Scripture, we find out that the union of marriage that God spoke about in Genesis, two becoming one, stated twice in five and in six, This is a representation of the union we enjoy with Christ in salvation. Paul says of husband and wife, of marriage, it's a mystery in a sense, but it's ultimately a reference, a parable, I've called it, of Christ and His bride, the church. Ephesians 5, 32, marriage is a parable of Christ's union with His people. So that's point number two. Marriage is a parable picturing our salvation. In marriage, as in salvation, we have this storyline of sacrifice from the start. Adam slept, gave his flesh for the sake and unity of Eve, unity with Eve. Christ gave his life to save and bring to union with himself his bride, the church. So we also 
are to picture this unity, husbands and wives, men, the kind of sacrificial love for our wives, ladies, your submission and respect for your husband. In marriage, as in salvation, we have the union of two, another way it parallels, a union of two in covenant. There are vows. Vows are made. A covenant is formed. Promises are made and promises that are to be kept. This, of course, is a picture of the covenant of salvation that God makes with those who have had faith in His Son. God draws us to His Son. We have faith in Him. We are justified. This covenant is established in our hearts. And in marriage, we have the love of groom for the bride. And we looked at this particularly in Ephesians 5, the love of groom for the bride and the respect of the bride for the groom. She submits just as we submit to Christ. Christ leads just as men are to lead their families. So if marriage is something that is very good, a treasure that's woven in creation, and marriage is a parable of salvation, then we saw, number three, that marriage unity and harmony should be pursued at all costs. We studied this last week. This objective, this effort is commended to married people all over the Bible. We looked at a few of them. We have ways in which we should fight for a marriage. Of course, it begins with that decision. I will be unified with my spouse. I will fight. I will repent. I will forgive. I'll do everything that's necessary for the unity and harmony in my marriage. It should be the utmost priority of our Christian walk as married believers. Well, what about marriage that is broken? That's today's topic, and we're talking of divorce. I know most of you married folks uh, are not going through divorce right now. I'm sure some, of, some are or thinking about it. I know that most of you married folks are not about to divorce, but in a broader way, there's a lot of things that can be applied to this, to apply to us. It applies to divorce, but it also applies to every marriage problem, every difficulty Every speed bump you have in your marriage, and I hope we can learn from Jesus as he, instruction, as he instructs us about divorce. So this is number four. Marriage is broken because of sin. Marriage is broken because of sin. I know that's sort of a simple, everyone knows this, but this is the point that Jesus is making. Verse 7, they said to him, why then, this is the Pharisees speaking, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? You'll notice that that's not a direct quote of the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say it that way. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, the Pharisees, you remember what the Pharisees were doing. They were trying to snare Jesus in his words. Their objective was evil. It even says earlier, you'll remember, they wanted to destroy Jesus. They wanted him dead. And so perhaps their thinking was, maybe we can diminish his popularity by him being, by showing that he's critical of divorcees. Perhaps maybe even he can be critical of the most uh, famous divorcee, Herod, Herod, not the great, but Herod, Herod's son, the Herod's the great son, Herod Antipas. And if he's critical of Herod Antipas, Maybe, just like John the Baptist, who was critical of him, he might be killed. Now, Jesus uses opportunity to give them the biblical perspective of divorce and remarriage, and that's what we're going to look at today. So what does the Bible teach on 
divorce. You may be surprised. Jesus speaks more than anyone about divorce, and that's probably because divorce was so rampant in his day. I told you early on in our study that there were two divisions in rabbinic teaching, and and most people sided with one side over the other. One side said no divorce. The other side said divorce for any reason. Of course, most men especially would side with the divorce for any reason side. I mentioned then, and I'll mention again to you today, one of the rabbis even said, you can divorce your wife if she burns your bagels. Sounds about like divorce today, doesn't it? People divorce over the silliest of reasons. They get angry. They separate. They find every silly, stupid reason to separate and move on to the next. It's, it's really in effect, even though I would mentioned this before, it's in effect, it's a different kind of polygamy. They move from wife to wife to wife to wife just so they can experience whatever thrill it is they can with multiple wives. Uh, let me give you a little interpretation tip. As you compare the Gospels, and this doesn't just apply to this passage, but to many other passages, as you look at the Gospels and read the stories of, of Jesus and the things that He said, there's something you need to keep in mind. Like every teacher, Jesus repeated Himself again and again and again. The, the Gospel writers, they're not writing down word for word, every minute by minute, exactly what Jesus did. They're giving an overview. They're summarizing. Oftentimes, they take a sermon and, and whittle it down just to, to a few sentences. And so sometimes you'll read a passage, perhaps like the one we're looking at today, about marriage and divorce, and then you look at another parallel passage in Mark or Luke, and you say, well, it's a little bit different. Well, that's probably because they're all sort of reducing what Jesus said down to the important facts and the facts that sort of align with the flow of their particular book. Each gospel writer did this, so don't be too, too confused when you see something a little bit different in Mark or Luke. Essentially, they're saying the same thing. And like any teacher, Jesus probably said many other things and repeated these things over and over again. So what did Jesus say? There's another way of asking, what does the Bible say about divorce? Well, the first direct instruction on divorce was given in the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, through the prophet Moses to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 24. You don't have to turn there, but basically what he does is he's protecting ladies against being abused through rampant divorces. In other words, the law there is if a guy divorces his wife and is unhappy uh, with her or unhappy with his new wife, he can't just yank, force this other lady, his first wife, to come back to him. They're trying to limit the amount of, of this sort of musical chairs that's going on with, with wives. It's to protect the ladies. But the larger point of the passage, and scholars generally agree on this, a larger point of the passage in Deuteronomy 24 is that divorce is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not something that's good in Israel. This is something that's bad. It's something that should be avoided. It's, it's not, it shouldn't be like this, women getting treated like this, men abusing, and that would be generally the way it would be back in that day. Gen, men abusing the, the laws and, and trying to find loopholes just so that they can go from woman to woman to woman. In Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16, we have a similar situation. The people just getting divorce after divorce after divorce, women being abused. God makes it clear through the prophet Malachi, this is not right. You're faithless. You're hurting your wives. You're hurting your children, 
This is not true to the covenant to which I've called you. This is not true to the covenant that you promised at the marriage altar. And it says at the end there, I believe it's around verse 16, the Lord covers his garment with violence. That phrase is most likely an idiom that simply means God hates divorce. And some translations even translate it that way. God hates. God covers his garment with violence as it pertains to divorce. He hates divorce. It's not the way it's supposed to be. So that's the first idea here about divorce. Maybe you want to write these down. Divorce is an allowance, not an option. Divorce is an allowance, not an option. And I'll explain to you the nuance here. Jesus mentions the allowance here at the start, but he and thus we will get to it later on this morning. The point he's making right there at the beginning is to see divorce as a deviation from what is the original plan. A deviation from God's moral will beginning at creation. Look there at verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. So this, this didn't begin with God's plan. This didn't begin with God's desire. I don't want to see a bunch of divorces. This began with your hardness of heart, your sin. Because of your sin, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Divorce is not one of the many options you have when you get married. A few weeks ago, I was purchasing a car, and I called my buddy who knows a lot about cars and was asking him questions and asking if uh, just financially some questions. And this car is about 60,000 miles on it. And Joe, what do you think? I... And he made the comment. He said, you know, the, the, the used market is so hot right now. You could buy that car. And if you didn't like it, didn't meet your needs or whatever, you could just turn around and sell it and probably make a little bit of money based upon the price you're getting for this thing. That's a legitimate option for you if you buy a car. You could just turn around and get rid of it. You could part ways with it. No harm, no foul. Divorce, Jesus is saying, is not an option like that. It's not a legitimate option. You don't just say at the beginning at the altar, you know, you make those vows and behind your back your fingers are crossed. Or have in your mind, well, if this doesn't work out, I can just divorce. You can just move on, no big deal, no harm, no foul. That's not true. There's a lot of harm and a lot of foul that happens in divorce. Those of you who've gone through divorce know this to be true. You don't marry with your fingers crossed. It's all or nothing. And if you were a a couple who came to me and it was clear to me that you were both genuine, true believers, I would never offer offer divorce as a legitimate option to your marriage problems. It actually galls me that there are Christian pastors, Christian theologians, Christian quote-unquote therapists who'll go along with what the world says about marriage and divorce. They just say, well, you know, maybe he's just throwing the towel. Maybe you're just, you just don't really get along. You don't really mesh with one another, and, and maybe it's just okay for you guys to move along. They have irre- irreconcilable differences. This is false. If you are Christ, you are one in Christ. There's no such thing as an irreconcilable difference. You will figure it out. If you're walking to Christ, if you're a genuine believer and your focus is on Christ and on righteousness, no matter what level or what depth the problems you have in your marriage, if you're walking to Christ, these things can be worked out. They're one with Christ. They're to be epitomizing this beauty of creation, 
If you both have that in your hearts, if you both have in your hearts the desire to, to picture the, the unity of Christ and the church and salvation, you will work this out. You will reconcile. Now, I'll quickly add that many times when people with marriage problems come to me, what I find out as I ask questions that one or both of them are not believers. And that's sort of the first big thing we have to work through. Which of you, if either, are not genuine followers of Christ? And sometimes it's the case that even if both profess to be Christians, it becomes clear that one or both are not. The perpetual sin, the refusal to repent, the refusal to forgive, the hatred, the spite, it's very clear to me that they don't really love Jesus and are trying to follow Jesus, follow Jesus and trying to, to live up to the standards of, of marriage as it's depicted in Scripture. Rather, they want their own thing. They want to do their own thing. They, they want to follow their own path, and they resist and resist and resist. And it becomes obvious that one or both of them are not believers at all. I will say this, oftentimes I've encountered couples who are true believers, and I often find that as I express this to them, that there must be reconciliation, it always seems to me that they know this truth already. Down deep inside, they understand they must stick together, they must work things out. So usually I don't have to work very hard to convince them that they need to work towards being a better believer, and in their effort to be a better believer and follow Christ better, they will grow closer together. What has happened is that sin has invaded and corrupted their marriage, and that sin needs to be dealt with, repented of, forgiven. And that brings me to the second point that sort of falls from what Jesus says here. Number two, divorce is a result of sin. Divorce is a result of sin. This seems like, again, sort of a no-brainer. You'd be surprised how many people, though, think that a breaking up of a marriage is just, it's just circumstantial, it has nothing to do with sin. It's just sort of nature working itself out. We're just not compatible. We've fallen out of love. They detach divorce from sin. But divorce is not the pursuit of righteousness, of godliness, It's not the result of walking in the Spirit. It's always the result of sin, usually in both people and oftentimes in one person more than the other. There's unrepented sin. There is sin that is repented of, but the other person refuses to forgive, and so that in itself is sin that's unrepented. And so that unrepented, unforgiven sin stains and skews the relationship. It spreads They began to look at all the other ways in which their spouse has offended them. They began to look back and get all involved in the histrionics of how they've been offended throughout the marriage. And they need to open their eyes. They have sin. And this sin is dividing the couple. So that's where you go first. If you have marriage problems, identify the sins that are causing. In your own heart, identify the sins that are causing the division in your marriage. Sin often causes more sin. Yes, it can cause adultery. Though again, I I think because of the passive mood of those, or passive voice of those words commits adultery, I'm not sure that that's what Jesus is actually talking about. I've heard some people say some really weird things. Even after they've been divorced several times and remarried, they feel like they're living in adultery by... by, uh, being intimate with their spouse. I don't think 
They need to, at that point, divorce that spouse and try to get back together or withhold intimacy. I don't think two wrongs make a right. Nevertheless, I do believe it's true that these sins beget other sins and other sins. It spreads. It spreads to the children. It spreads to others. They begin to see this. They begin to observe this. Even among couples, I've seen this happen among couples. There's a marriage problem here, and one guy begins to gripe about his wife to another guy, and he says, oh, yeah, my wife's just as bad, or maybe even worse. And it spreads, and it spreads, and it spreads, just like every sin. Division in your marriage is a result of sin, and ultimately divorce is a result of sin. You think of the temptations that happen at divorce, sudden loneliness, the loss, there's problems with children, there's problems with custody, there's the inevitable fight about money and belonging, sin begets sin, but the sin that caused divorce is by virtue of the divorce not being dealt with, it's not repented of, it's not forgiven. These ongoing issues spread. Have you ever wondered why people, some people just seem to go from the divorce to divorce and they just, they never can seem to figure it out? I remember a guy told me one time, hey, I know a lot about marriage. I've been married three times. So that's the second thing Jesus says here. Divorce is a result of sin. This is not the way it's supposed to be. When divorce happens, it's the result of a breakdown. It's a result of a lack of holiness. It's the result of people not pursuing Christ-likeness in their marriage Divorce is a result of sin, not the way it's supposed to be. But there is an allowance for divorce. And so this is the third idea here. It deals with that allowance. Divorce, number three, in certain terrible circumstances is permitted. Again, most Protestant Christians see that clause in verse 9, except for sexual immorality, they see that as an exception to the rule, no divorce. So, so get that in your mind, and that's why I'm, I'm trying to push this nuance so strong to you. There is no divorce. That's the rule. No divorce. Don't divorce. That's the rule. But there is an exception. And I agree with that interpretation that Christians have generally had through the centuries. The word there... For sexual immorality is the word porneia, which is where we get the word pornography. It deals with a wide array of sexual sins. And since I believe the husband and wife are to be physically intimate and physically active, I believe this would also apply to adultery, excuse me, to abuse, which would be the opposite of physical intimacy, and abandonment, which would be the negation or neglect of physical intimacy. I believe they're all related in this word, porneia. This seems to be the best interpretation as we look to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul references Jesus in the passage we read earlier. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul says this, "...to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord." The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. You see the rule there. That phrase there, not I but the Lord, what what Paul is saying is, I'm referencing something specific that our Lord Jesus Christ said. And I believe Paul is looking right back to this passage and others where Jesus speaks very clearly about divorce. The rule is no divorce. Now, there's a little cultural issue here. It says... 
that ladies are not, not allowed to divorce their husbands in that culture. Only men could divorce their wives. So I think there's room for uh, separating because of abuse or whatever. But even then, Paul says divorce is not an option here. The rule is they work it out. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 7, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Again, not meaning this is not inspired. This is just Paul giving his personal advice. This is just saying, I'm not quoting something that Jesus said here. I'm not going back to some words that Jesus said. Jesus did not discuss the situation I'm about to discuss. To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is to is made holy because of his wife. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. I won't get into a detailed analysis of all that this thing says. Verse 15, the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So here again, we have this exception. I believe Paul sets out the rule. Here's the rule. No divorce, but there is an exception. If the unbelieving spouse leaves, if they abandon you, one, let it be so, and two, you are, quote, not enslaved. You are free. And I take that to mean free to marry if they've divorced you. You are free to marry. So just like Jesus, Paul exalts this rule, this standard, no divorce, but he mentions the exception, and he speaks of this case of abandonment, which Jesus didn't speak about, but it's parallel to the exception that Jesus gave as well. Divorce is no option. He even adds, don't just rust the divorce. Even if the person, situation where your spouse is lost, stay together if they're willing to stay together. You might even see that your faithfulness to Christ and your love of Christ with eventually cause that person to see Christ and understand Christ. Maybe your dedication to them and your willingness to live with them would lead them to Christ, and it would also do the same for your children. But also like Jesus, Paul says, there's an exception. An abandonment, abuse, or adultery has happened. Let them go, and you are free. All right, just a few words of application, and we'll be finished. I know it's been sort of academic today, I think it's one of those things that's kind of like an orthopedic surgeon. You never need an orthopedic surgeon until you really need one. And, and I know that divorce is not really a subject that a lot of you are swimming in right now, not that interesting, maybe, maybe some of you are. And this is super valuable to you, and maybe one day you'll be able to use some of these things as you look at Scripture later on and help other people. So a few words of application. Let me do, I want to, to apply this to those of us who are not even considering divorce Maybe this will help you as well. First of all, remove any thought of divorce. Get, get rid of any thought or language. D- don't ever, in the heat of an argument, use the D word. Don't be an idiot. You're not considering it. You would never consider it. Remove any idea of separation or divorce. Remove that from your vernacular. Remove that from your thought processes. Never threaten your spouse, no matter how heated the argument, flee that whole idea. Again, especially as a Christian, just remember that's the rule. This is not an option. Now, there is an exception. There, this is not an option. 
The second piece of advice I would give you is as a couple, together pursue holiness. If sin is the source of a broken marriage and eventually divorce, why don't you make it your objective as a couple to pursue holiness? If you know that any sin could come in and, and entangle any, either one of you, why not together unite in your fight against sin and your pursuit of holiness? This is why in a moment as I close in, in a benediction is why I point us to Galatians, and I had it read earlier as well, Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. These are things that a Christian couple should be pursuing together, be discussing together. They should seek to walk in the Spirit. And a final piece of advice I would give is your situation does meet the exception to the rule. Don't just rush to divorce. Don't just say, ah, well, the shoe fell, I'm done. Sweet. I'm finished with this guy. He's a jerk. Get advice, get help. Try to work to our godly marriage. Do the best you can. See, see if there's a way that it can work out. Don't just rush to divorce just because you fit the exception. Well, again, my prayer is that our church would work toward healthy marriages for the sake of our children, for the sake of this world, for the sake of those around us, for the sake even of our church, that we would pursue healthy marriages. It's amazing to me that every time I have in the history talked about marriages, there's always it sort of bubbles things up in various marriages across the church. They go home and they begin to talk about it, ask questions, and get this feeling, we got to deal with this. And that's good. Deal with it. Do it the right way. Do, be kind to one another. Love one another. Don't argue and bicker. Try to work towards holiness together. Those of you who are single, whether that's through uh, lifelong bachelorhood or it's through a divorce or through a death, uh, get ready. Next week is for you. It's going to be a good one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you've given us today. We thank you for the words of Jesus that you have blessed us with. We're so excited about all the things that you've told us here to implement these in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll give us the desire to do just that. Help us love you in this way. Lord, this is a reflection of our love for you to pursue the words that you have told us. To do what you have said is tantamount. It's the same thing. It's the ultimate expression of our love for you. To reject your words, to walk away unchanged by what you say, is tantamount to hating you and despising you and refusing you. And Lord, as Christians, we don't do that. We love you. Help us to love you in the way in which we pursue healthy marriages. Lord, again, I do pray for those who may not know you. Perhaps maybe there's a gentleman or a gentlewoman out here, and they're realizing as they struggle in their marriage, they're realizing the ultimate reason for their struggle is because they've never had faith in Jesus Christ. So Lord, again, grant them that faith and repentance Give them the desire to follow after Jesus and believe in Him. All of us need your strength to do this. And as always, we ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.